Amen. Thank you, Vicki. Uh, so this morning we're beginning a new series that will go throughout the summer on the Lord's Prayer. You see that in that art, Joe? I like the artwork, I needed to say. I think it looks good on the worship folder, too. That's the stained glass window. It's pretty cool. Uh, we're going to be, there are two places where you find the Lord's Prayer, Matthew's Gospel and then in Luke's Gospel. We're going to actually look at Luke uh, chapter 11, actually Luke 10 and 11 throughout the number of weeks that we're going to be um, doing this. Now for two reasons. One is that the church has long looked to the Lord's Prayer as a rubric for the spiritual life. And so any, any deeply formed life uh, with the God of the Bible has always, has always centered around this central thing that Jesus taught his disciples when he taught them how to pray. And so it deserves special attention. But secondly, the other reason for doing this this summer is I'm asking us, and I'm putting you on notice, I'm asking us to make prayer our focus as a church for this next year. And by that I mean the ministry year beginning with the fall, but we're kind of leading up to that now. We're, we have some concrete goals about, about how we're going, you know, the number of people in the church and the process by which we're going to try to train you in prayer. To, we have goals to build prayer into our small group meetings and so forth, a certain percentage of every meeting that happens at this church, because we believe that the most crucial thing in front of us is for us to learn how to be a church that prays. In a post-Christian, post-COVID world, uh, we believe that we need to learn how to pray. Now, the actual text of the Lord's Prayer uh, in Luke's Gospel, verses 2 through 4, is bracketed on each side by two stories about prayer. In the front of the Lord's Prayer there, if you have a Bible, you'll see this, is the familiar story of Mary and Martha entertaining Jesus in their home. Martha, busy, busy working while Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. And you may not know, but it's a story about prayer because the chapter headings are artificial. It's meant to go with all the other teaching about prayer. Immediately after the Lord's Prayer is this text that we're going to look at this morning. And it's a parable and then a lesson. And the reason you would say, well, why don't we start at the beginning and go through and come to the end? Why are we starting at the end and then going to make our way back? Well, that's confusing. Well, it's because this is Pentecost Sunday, and this particular text is a text about the Holy Spirit. And so it felt fitting. And so we're going to read this this, um, this part immediately following the Lord's Prayer here, beginning in verse 5 to verse 13. It's a parable in verses 5 through 8 that Jesus offers, and then he draws out the lessons in verses 9 through 13. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along with me, that'd be great. Uh, if not, it's printed for you in your worship folder. It's on the screen behind me. If you're at home, we welcome you. It should be on your screen as well. Uh, let's read together. And Jesus said to them, again, as soon as he had taught them to pray, he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impotence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And then the lesson, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it, is, it will be opened. For what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? And if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. This is God's word. Say with me, the grass withers and the flowers fade, 
but the word of our God stands forever. You know what the main difference between you and God is? God never thinks he's you. Why did y'all laugh when I asked the question? I'm confused. Did you know what the punchline was? Or was that a strange way to start a sermon? I don't know. The main difference between you and God is that God does not think he's you. Now, a lot of the ways that that pride that uncovers reveals itself is in whether or not we pray. In, in how we approach life in prayer. And that's what this text is about. It's a parable and a lesson. And it teaches us three things. It teaches us that we should pray. It teaches us why we don't pray. And it also teaches us what, or rather who, we should pray for. And so we want to walk through the text just along those three headings there, the three points in the outline that I've given you in your worship folder, if you want to follow along there. That we should pray, why we don't, and who we should pray for. So first, this whole section of Luke's gospel is an appeal that we should pray. Remember, again, the chapter headings are artificial, this is connected to what, come just, what comes just before it when Jesus is teaching his disciples the rubric for prayer. There's a certain way Jesus wants us to go about our lives as his followers. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, the door will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Many of us have been profoundly affected by Paul Miller's A Praying Life. Uh, I have, and one of, the, one of my favorite parts of that is where Paul, what's, what's so striking about the book, and by the way, he's written, written, written a second book that's coming out very, very soon called A Praying Church. So some of what I'm thinking through is, you know, what Paul's trying to help us think through. But what is so profound about Paul's book to me is that he, in a way that I've not heard anybody else describe it, he talks about how he does his life through prayer how he does his work through prayer, how he does his parenting through prayer, how the activity of his life is really done through prayer and not just his own doing because there really are two ways to do life. You can do life by doing through effort and self-will or you can do life by asking through prayer. And we much prefer doing to asking because, of course, doing makes you feel strong and able and competent. It provides the illusion that you really are in control of your life, that the outcomes are determined by your effort, by your talent, by your resources. And we are, if we were honest, we're all just prideful enough to consider that good news. Because who better, <laughs> who better to be at the control panel of my life than me? Like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, it's such a poignant moment there in the story that Daniel's telling. We stand atop our lives and we say, as that king did, is this not great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And we feel safe and secure knowing that life is in our own hands. And even when we mess up, it feels good to think that it's our fault, whatever's going wrong, because if it's our fault, then it's not beyond our control. Because though we are powerless against cancer and coronavirus and inflation, we can't change other people. We are in charge of ourselves. At least, we think we are. 
So if the solution is that we do it better next time around, then there's some hope. Because I can take control of myself. We can regain control of things and will them by better effort next time towards the desired ends. But Jesus invites us into a different way. It's what you want to, I want you to see here. He, he, the way he invites us in is to ask, to seek, and to knock instead of doing. To live as if you are not strong. As if you are not able and competent on your own. But as if you really are weak. As if the power belongs to God and not to you. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4. Whatever it is that you're up against. The truth is that it is not by power or might, but by God's spirit, right? Doing is relying on your own strength, your own wealth. Asking is relying on God's power, his heart. And Jesus is very straightforward. He says the only way, listen, please, the only way for you to get what you need is to ask. You cannot do it on your own, whatever it is. Fill in the blank. You cannot do it on your own. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing, he says. You cannot plan or organize or earn or achieve your way to success and safety. James is very clear in his letter to call that boasting. Who even knows what tomorrow will bring, he says. You're not in control. Should I say that again? You're not in control. You're a mist that appears for a little while and then is gone. And if you want to know how deep pride goes in the human heart, after the last two years, we still feel like we're in control? There is a life control illusion, and it is the strategy of the enemy. Don't buy it. And it's a terribly naive way to live when you think about it, to think that you can make it all happen the way you want to. (laughs) The world is desperately sick, friends. Sin has broken things to the point that they are unfixable by any human effort, and you're a part of all that is broken. You're not a part of the solution. The problem with doing life through self-will, through my effort and my resources and my earning, the problem with doing life that way is there's so much of me in it. Right? My words, my emotions, my anger, which I falsely believe are the things that are going to make the difference. Not to mention this. The Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Do you know what that means? It means if you insist on going about things in your own strength, you will never get to where you're trying to go. The door will remain closed to you. God will see to it. So you see, the alternative is so much better. Ask. Ask. Come to the end of yourself and ask. And Lamont has written uh, a little book that's in fairly typical Anne Lamott fashion, irreverent in some places and probably not helpful, but in other places really, really profound. And uh, she writes, she says basically there are three prayers. If you boil, boil all our praying down to three prayers, help, wow, thanks. And, and, and in the, she, so she talks about praying the prayer help, and this is what she says. She says, there is freedom in hitting bottom in seeing that you won't be able to save or rescue your life there's relief in admitting that you've reached the place of great, of, of great unknowing. Because this is where restoration can begin. Because when you're still in the state of trying to fix the unfixable, everything bad is engaged. The chatter of your mind, the tension of your physiology, all the trunks and wheel-ons you carry from the past. It's exhausting crazy-making, she says. <laughs> it's great. It's exhausting crazy-making. Anybody there testify this morning? Yep, that's basically what my week has felt like. 
But she says, but when we have run out of good ideas on how to fix the unfixable, when we finally stop trying to heal our own sick, stressed minds with our own sick, stressed minds, when we truly are at the end of our rope and just done, then we pray, help. And there's honesty in that simple prayer about what she calls the terrible truths of our existence. Are you ready to hear the terrible truths of your existence? We are so ruined. We are so loved. And we are in charge of so little. And so we pray, help. It's all too much, right? Help, I can't do this. Or help, I can't stop doing this. Or help, my kids are in trouble. Or help, I can't go any further. Help. I mean, imagine, imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you that you would die within an hour unless you took a particular medicine, a pill, once a day. Imagine you were told you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not get around to it because you got busy doing other things? Would the day go by and, oh, that slipped my mind? No, it would be so crucial to you that you wouldn't forget, you would never miss. If we don't pray, we won't make it. Life is too hard. We are too weak. We have to learn to pray. But secondly, so that is, that is just a bit about why we should pray or that we should pray. Secondly, we're also shown here in pretty much, in, in a great deal of detail, the reason why we don't spend our life, uh, why, well, excuse me, why we spend our life doing instead of asking, the reason why we don't pray. And here's what it is. It is because we wrongly believe the truth about God. We believe wrongly about him. If prayerlessness is the sin that we're diagnosing, unbelief is the sin underneath the sin. Prayerlessness is the fruit, but unbelief, unbelief is the root. And Jesus' parable, beginning in verse 5, is aimed at unbelief. Look there. He means for us to live like the person that he describes in this parable who goes to his friend in the middle of the night to ask for help. Now, the problem is, is his friend is already in bed. He's already closed the door. He's gotten in bed. The whole family would be sleeping there in the same room or even in the same bed. And for him to get up is just going to cause disruption to the whole house. And so he selfishly refuses to get up to give the man what he needs. It's too big. It's too, it's too big an inconvenience. It's just too much putting him out. But then as the story goes on, you learn that eventually something happens and he relents. But what, you, but what you see is he doesn't relent because of their friendship. It says that very clearly in verse 8. It's not because the man was his friend. It was because of the man's impotence. Now that's the punchline. Impotent in English means it, it describes not showing proper respect. It's a cocky boldness. It's somebody who just asks for too much, right? They just, they just, they just ask for too much. A person who's arrogant enough... Uh, or just desperate enough that they disregard others in their asking things of them. Now, in the Greek, it's a word that means bashful or reserved or respectful or even reverent that has a negative prefix attached to it. So this is someone who has no sense of boundaries. They push themselves in on others without thinking about what's appropriate or convenient. This is the kind of person who will come knocking on your door at midnight, at midnight for a loaf of bread. Walmart is open. What are you doing here? Right? You with me? 24 hours. But here's the thing. Here's what blows my mind is that this man's 
cocky boldness is, in Jesus' mind, a model for our own prayers. Anybody else struggle with that? If you know me at all, it's so hard for me, I'll admit it, my personality. I have a hard time asking people for help. I'm an Enneagram 2, which means my whole strategy for being loved is not to need anything, right? To always be the helper and not the helpee. Doesn't it feel so much better to be the helper than the helpee? That, thank you, Jenny. I envy people who can ask other people for stuff. It's not, uh, that's not really true. I'm annoyed by people who find it so easy to ask other people for help. I, they should be more like me. And in my saner moments, though, I know it's the opposite, that I should be more like them. So here's, here's one lesson of this. Don't ever respond to those scam emails that claim to be for me asking for help. I'm not going to ask you for help. I don't do that. I don't do that. I'm in a meeting. I need help. Somebody's trying to, I would never do that. I would never do that. Okay, you with me? I'll never do that. And if I ever do call you or ask you personally for help with something, listen, you, you, know, you must know it's, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. I'm personally caught here. This is so uncomfortable for me. And it's so the opposite of the way I live my life, but I don't think I'm alone. I think you're caught too. I think we all are. And here's the thing. Ironically, the more religious you become, the more tempted you are to believe that God wants you strong and competent, not weak. Religion says what matters is your effort. You serve him. You bleed for him. You build his kingdom. You're here for him. But Christianity says what matters most is your need. He serves you. He bleeds for you. He builds a kingdom and gifts it to you. Luke goes on to say in the next chapter. So what pleases God most is not your doing for him, but his doing for you. It's almost too wonderful to believe, isn't it? I mean, do you believe that? Because uh, I don't. This is where I live in unbelief. I don't believe that. I don't believe that Christianity really is grace. That in Christianity, a relationship with God is not based on your effort, on, on, well, on my effort, on my record, on my righteousness. It's based upon the work of Jesus for me, right? His life of obedience for me. His death on the cross for my sins. His resurrection power creating newness of life in me. That's where all of this takes place. So it's not, not my righteousness. It's my sin, but his righteousness. It's not my sufficiency, but actually the whole thing is predicated upon my weakness, but his strength. There's a deeper point, though, that Jesus is making here about the generosity of God's heart towards his people. And you can, I guess you could say you should, be like this man in your prayers, pushy in your prayers, coming at all hours of the night and knocking until someone answers the door, you can be forward, you can be presumptuous even, because of God's heart for you. But you know what the other side of the truth is? Is you don't have to be any of that because of God's heart for you. You can be pushy, you can come at all night, all hours of the night, you can knock the door down, you can do all of that. You can be presumptuous, even irreverent, because of God's heart for you. But the truth is, you don't have to do any of it because of God's heart for you. It took this kind of pushiness by this man to get the friend out of bed in the middle of the night. He didn't do it out of love. He didn't do it because his friend needed help. He did it to get rid of him so he could go back to sleep. It wasn't, it wasn't generosity. It was selfishness, but it worked. And if that's true, here's the point Jesus is making. Imagine what might be possible when you ask of God who is always ready to open the door when you come knocking.
His friend's heart failed. He did not act with the love and generosity he should have in light of his friendship. And yet, even so, he gave the man what he needed. But God's heart never fails. There is no hesitancy in him, no selfishness. There's no busyness that keeps him from answering with God. Here's the truth. With God, you never have to knock twice. You never have to knock twice. Jesus makes the same argument later when he says down in verses 11 and 12, ask, seek, knock. For what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will instead give him a scorpion? And if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give to those who ask him? Now that word evil there sticks in the throat, doesn't it? It did for me as I read it. And it means this, at your best as a parent, you are still evil. And at their best, whoever parented you, they were still evil. And yet nearly all of us, even in light of all of that, have some kind of firsthand experience of a parent's generosity and love. I love, um, I love when my kids ask me for stuff. Because again, Enneagram 2, I, I, love, I, I have a hard time asking them to do for me. Uh, my son mowed the lawn yesterday without even asking me, and I almost made him stop because I just couldn't stand the thought that he was doing something for me instead of me doing something for him. Um, I, I, love it when, I love it when they ask stuff of me so I can, I can do for them. I love it even more. I love even more to do things for them before they ask. So I'll get up on Saturday, Saturday morning sometimes and go put gas in their cars, or I'll bring treats home and put them on the counter so they're there when they wake up, because it makes a difference. It makes a difference to know you're not all alone, that there is a generous heart in the background of your life that is arranging for your life. We read Psalm 23 yesterday. Isn't Psalm 23 just the best? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That God is preparing banqueting tables every day. Every day we wake up into a banqueting table that's been prepared by God's love for us. And I want my kids to experience that. To know they're not all alone. To know that there's a generous heart that's arranging for their life. But listen, don't be impressed by any of that. At my best, I'm still evil. And so there's a larger lesson for my kids to learn. And it's that whatever generosity their dad is able to muster up out of his selfish, crusty heart, it is nothing in comparison to the how much more, the how much more of being loved by the Heavenly Father. Now put it all together. We are busy doing instead of asking because we fail to believe the truth about God's heart for us. So prayer begins with knowing God as a father. I mean, how does the Lord's prayer begin? Our father. Because that's the starting place. And so here's the thing. And we're going to come back to this time and time again over the next number of weeks. But we don't pray because we don't believe that God is a loving, generous father. And so if you want to become a person of prayer, you have to start there. Before, because so much, this is what I appreciate about a praying life again, and what Bob and the work that Bob's done here in our church and all over the country, because what, what a praying life understands is before you get into technique and strategies, you gotta get the theology right. Because if you get the theology right, the rest has this amazing way of just kind of taking care of itself. The reason people don't pray the reason I don't pray is because my heart has somehow become disconnected from my father's heart, which must grieve him so greatly. And Jesus is trying desperately to reconnect 
our longings, to reconnect our need, to reconnect our sense of, uh, of, of just going about day-to-day life with the reality of God's gracious, generous, overflowing heart to create a banqueting table for us so that we could say with, the, with David in Psalm 23, my cup overflows. And so we see that we should pray, and we see why we don't, but then thirdly, and I want to lead us and end here this morning, we see thirdly what to pray for, or, or better, who. Verse 13, it says, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so we should ask for the Holy Spirit. Now today is Pentecost Sunday. It's the Sunday when the church remembers the events of Acts chapter 2, uh, which is the place when the Holy Spirit was given to the church, where the Spirit came down upon the followers of Jesus. So the Father loved the world so much that he gave the Son so that all who believed in him could be saved by his life of perfect obedience, his death upon the cross for sins. Jesus, our great Lord and Savior, was raised and ascended back to heaven. And all of that, here's here's one thing I want to say to you. The coming of Jesus is not what proves or excuse me, the coming of Jesus and all that Jesus did to save you is not what wins God's heart for you. It's, it's what proves God's heart for you previous to Jesus coming. Jesus did not come to make God love you. Jesus came because God loves you. Does that make sense? It's an important, it's a important distinction to make. So the son was sent because God so loved the world and he was raised and ascended back to heaven to the right hand of the father. And then what, what Christian theology teaches us, what the Bible says is that the father and the son in cahoots with one another sent the spirit into the world to powerfully apply that work that Jesus had accomplished to the hearts of every person who believed and to powerfully work in the world to bring about everything that God had promised. And so the spirit has come. Jack Miller, Paul Miller's father, he was really the father of the gospel awakening that's happened uh, over the last 50 years or so. So Tim Keller and Redeemer in New York City and CCEF in Philadelphia, which is um, a a counseling foundation there, uh, around Westminster Seminary and even the Presbyterian Church in America, which we're a part of, all of that, it all kind of makes its, its way back to Jack and what, what, what Jack experienced at New Life Church there in Philadelphia and, and, and beyond. But in his own words, there's a recent biography that came out about him, and in his own words, somebody was asking him, like, how, it was a genuine revival, and somebody was asking him, like, how did this happen? What, what, what took place? What do you attribute all this to? And he just said, I decided to become a Trinitarian. <laughs> I love that. I decided to become I decided to become a Trinitarian. In other words, he realized that his theology, that our theology, often marginalizes the role of the Holy Spirit. And so he began to ask for the Holy Spirit, and everything changed. Do you ask for the Holy Spirit? That's where the text points you. When you pray, do you just ask God to fix it, or is, is, is it more specific? Do you ask him for the Holy Spirit? When you pray for your kids... Do you ask God to change them or do you ask him for the spirit to come and change their hearts and do his work in their life? When you pray for a meeting, do you ask God to be with you or do you ask for the spirit to come to personally guide you and help you when you're in a funk, right? Do you ask God to make it better or do you say, oh God, fill me with the Holy Spirit and bear his fruit of joy and peace in me? Because see, it's, it's subtle, but it's one thing to know that God can help. It's another thing to know how that help comes. 
ask for the Holy Spirit. So a quick refresher course in the Holy Spirit as we conclude this morning. Okay, just the theology of the Spirit, because this is what we need to do this every so often, and that's why the church has set aside Pentecost Sunday. But let me just say it this way. Jesus said to the disciples that it was better for them that he go away because if he went away, he would send the Holy Spirit. Do you know what that means? It means the Spirit of Jesus inside of you is better than the person of Jesus beside you. The Holy Spirit is not anticlimactic to the gospel story. It is the exclamation point. I mean, the liturgical calendar in the church is not over at Easter. It is over on Pentecost Sunday. Then we enter ordinary time until Advent. But this is the day. The, whole, the culmination of the whole thing is the coming of the Spirit. And the Spirit is power. That's outside power coming in. The Spirit is outside power coming in. Power from outside the world coming into the world to fix the unfixable in the world. And that's what the world needs. There is no worldly power that can fix our problems. Can we stop thinking there is? There is no worldly power that can fix our problems. We need a power from outside the world. And the Spirit is power outside of the world to come and fix what is unfixable by human effort in the world. But it's also power outside of you to come and change you. Because the problem is not <clears throat> out here. That's what the secular person would say. A secular person would say, I'm being oppressed. I'm, I'm being held back by social convention. I need to break free, right? Salvation is self-actualization. The problem is out here. The solution is in here by becoming my authentic self. So you go inside and find the truth and then you, then you do everything you can to bring that truth out into reality. That's what the secular person would say. But the religious person would say, no, the problem is not out here. The problem is in here. It's my sin. But where they would agree is the, the, the religious person would say, but, but, the, but the solution is also in here. The problem's in here, it's my sin, but the solution is also in here, it's, it's my moral effort. And that's when the Christian comes along and says, no, 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 you both have it wrong. The problem is in here, it's me, but the power for change has to come from outside me. The Holy Spirit has to come into the world from outside the world. If you believe, then he has come inside of you to change you from the inside out too, because the Spirit is outside power coming in. But secondly, the Spirit is also supernatural strength to get started. I mean, Jesus told his disciples, wait and pray, right? In Acts chapter one, wait and pray. They were not to start the mission until the spirit had come because if they had started without the spirit, it would have been in their own strength. In the same way, your life with God does not start until the spirit comes. If you're a Christian, it's not because you made a New Year's resolution. It's not because you made a decision at a revival service or you prayed a prayer at some point. If you're a Christian, it's because the Spirit came probably before you even knew to ask him to come and made you alive when you were dead. The Spirit has to get you started before you can even believe you must be born again. That's what the Scripture teaches. And so every time... Every time a church pushes forward, every new horizon in a person's spiritual journey, it always begins with a fresh encounter of the Spirit. It, it was dead calm, right? It was dead calm, and then out of nowhere, the wind starts to blow. You're singing a song, and none of it means anything, and then all of a sudden, it does. And you start to cry, because, because the truth of it has come home to your heart. And that's why you don't just pray for change, you pray for the Spirit. Because you have to say things like, Lord, I'm stuck. 
I have no idea how to get unstuck, so please give me the spirit, and then let him do whatever he wants to do. I don't even know what should happen here, but I submit myself to whatever new work he would begin in me. But the spirit is also not just outside power coming in and um, supernatural strength to get started, but it's also daily grace to keep going because here's the thing. You don't become a Christian by believing the gospel and then grow by trying harder. You become a Christian by believing the gospel and then you grow by believing the gospel more deeply. When you become a Christian, it's a supernatural work of God's spirit when you grow, every small advance, every kindness one of your children shows to the other, it's a supernatural work of the Spirit. It's all grace. And the key is to rely daily on grace and not yourself, to keep asking and not doing. But that's the flesh. That's the flesh at work in you to push you into doing. And it's why you overwork. It's why you overparent. It's why you over anything because you're not trusting in God's power. You fall back into works. And that's actually, ironically, when the spiritual power goes away. Grace is not opposed to effort. There's striving, but according to the Bible, it's a striving to rest. Which means to trust in God's power and God's heart, not mine. So when you ask for the Spirit, you're asking God to, once again, reorient your heart to grace, not works, every day, all the time. So you pray things like, Lord, the power for today comes not from me, but from you, so please... Help me to rely upon the working of your Holy Spirit today and not my own strength, right? Ask for the Spirit. Um, so that verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I changed it so I can't remember we didn't read it, but in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verse 17, there's just this one-off verse that's probably one of the hardest verses in the entire scriptures. It says, pray without ceasing. Do you know, are you familiar with the verse? Pray without ceasing. Now, that's what God's will for us, Paul says, is that we would pray without ceasing. It's what he expects from us. That is the standard, that you would pray and never stop praying. And I have to admit to you, I used to be so intimidated by that verse, but now, and maybe I'm just getting older and wiser, I don't know, but now it just makes sense. I've failed enough times by now that I get it. How else would you do life? And so that's the invitation, that we become people that truly that Jesus means for us to be people who obey that verse to pray without ceasing. And so we would, we would say along with Isaac Watts these words that he wrote a long, long time ago where he says, Come Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening power, kindle a flame of sacred love in these cold hearts of ours. Come Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening powers, come shed abroad the Savior's love, and that shall kindle ours. Would you pray with me? So Father, may that be true. Would you come? Holy Spirit, now among us, upon us as your people, shed the love of Jesus for us abroad in our hearts that it might kindle the flame of love for you, kindle the flame of hope and joy and peace and patience, kindle the flame of faith in us that we might burn from within with the fire of your Holy Spirit. John the Baptist said that when you came, you would baptize us with Holy Spirit and fire. And I pray, I ask that you would do that, that you would baptize this church, maybe this morning, maybe in this moment right here, with Holy Spirit and fire, that we might be a people that go and ravage the world for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. Lead us to repentance and faith this morning, even as we reflect and come to this table, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you seen this stat? I don't, I'm not going to get it right, but something like... Um, 80% of people believe that God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible. Friends, can I tell you it's not? 
This benediction does not belong to the strong. It belongs to the weak. In fact, God's, it, again, uh, the Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so if you're here and you would say, it's cool, I got it. Then the Lord would say to you this morning, okay, get after it. Let's see how this goes. Uh, but if you would come and say, oh, I don't know how I'm going to make it through the next week. I don't know how I barely made it through the last week. How in the world am I going to find all the strength that I need? Then he comes to you with these good words to say, I got you. Because grace, my grace goes to the weak. And so if you're weak, then reach out with your arms to receive uh, this promise of God to be with you. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace. Of